Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so glad today to have Tara Lee Grove as my guest. She is the Charles E. Tweedy Jr. Endowed Chairholder in Law at the University of Alabama, a graduate of Duke, undergraduate in Harvard Law School. She clerked on the Fifth Circuit, worked for the Appellate Division of the Department of Justice, and she has been incredibly busy writing a whole bunch of great law review articles, which I'm really happy to talk about. Tara, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, so that so so you, you've been busy, <laughs> and you've been busy writing um, and and several pieces in Harvard and other great places. Um, you wrote an article. You've written an article called "Which Textualism or Isms?" Which Textualism is, I think, the name of it. Um, I found this article fascinating. Um, do you want to like summarize your thesis, and then we'll get into it? Right. So the piece is a is a case comment on Bostock versus Clayton County, which right. is the recent case asking the question. Is the disparate treatment of a gay, lesbian, or transgender individual um, discrimination on the basis of such individual sex in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964? So I was tasked with writing a case comment. I use that as an opportunity to really get into something that I've been noticing over the last several years, that a lot of things fall under the banner of textualism, and they, they're not all the same. And so what I argued is there are two types of textualism, probably better styled as ends of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. There's a more formalistic variety of textualism that focuses more on what I call the semantic context. Um, so the text and surrounding structure of a statute. And that kind of cordons off other issues like the social context of, of the time in which a statute was passed or the practical consequences that might, might result from the Supreme Court's decision. And then there's what I call a more, a more flexible textualism where the justices will look at a whole bunch of stuff. They focus on the text, um, but they're trying to make sense of that text by, text by looking at social context and practical consequences. In Bostock, this, this was an extraordinarily important decision, division because uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion for the court used the more formalistic variety to say, well, firing a male employee because he is attracted to men when you wouldn't fire a female employee who's attracted to, to men um, or file, firing an employee after she transitions from male to female, that sure seems like discrimination because of such individual sex, just in violation of the plain text. And what Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh's dissent, particularly Justice Alito's dissent, did was apply a more flexible textualism and say, well, we can't just look at that. Uh, we also need to look at the social context of 1964. And Justice Alito emphasizes, and Justice Kavanaugh also says, in 1964, almost no one would have said that the disparate treatment of a gay, lesbian, or transgender individual is discrimination because of such individual sex. So they call it uh, the understandings of the time. Um, one might call it the expectations <laughs> of the time. Um, it's kind of an, an originalism yes. version uh, or a, a type of originalism applied to uh, reading the text. And Justice Alito is also very concerned about the practical consequences, uh, what might happen in constitutional cases or it, or when there is a division between uh, religious freedom and the rights of gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals. Justice Kavanaugh, less so, but is still concerned about one practical consequence. He thinks this decision will just create unfair surprise for employers. Right. Um, Gorsuch also was concerned about the religious part of it, though. I mean, he had a, he had a sentence or a couple sentences about this this may eventually collide with some religious liberty claims, and we'll worry about that later. Doesn't he have a, sen a couple sentences about that? So, yeah, he, he acknowledges that there may be some issues later on, but that's not a reason to right. change your understanding of right. the text. So let's unpack this a little bit. Um, so you said there it's a spectrum from very formalistic textualism to a more practical, flexible textualism. My first question is, let's take a bizarre statute like the Sherman Antitrust Act. I don't think there's any way to read either the act or the context of the act as anything other than Congress saying to the federal courts, you figure this out over time as times change. I mean, it is possible that Congress can say for this particular law, either either, either because it's necessary or whatever reason, we want a more flexible approach to it. Is that a theoretical possibility to you? So, uh, so one, many textualists have said exactly what you have about the Sherman Act, right. John Manning, uh, Frank right. Easterbrook. Right. Uh, I, I, I actually think it's hard to read the Supreme Court's decisions of the Sherman Act as statutory interpretation rather than um, delegation to the courts. And I think that's, that's a fair point. I, I think one 
one assumption about textualists, in part because Justice Scalia used to say this, yes. um, is that if you are a textualist, you think there's always a right answer from the text. I do not believe that. I, I don't think John Manning ever said that. Sure. And I think other textualists, Frank, Frank Easterbrook ever said that either. Um, many texts actually are open-ended. And for those texts, you're going to need some other institution, whether it be administrative agencies or the courts, to flesh them out. The Sherman Act is one of them. I don't think Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, as, as with the issue in Bostock, was terribly unclear. But I think there are a lot of statutes that are unclear. And I'll say at the outset, one thing that differentiates me from at least some people today is that I am very comfortable with delegations to other institutions like administrative agencies. Right. So I'm quite comfortable when the text runs out to say that there's someone else to answer that question. Fascinating. Well, you, you and I agree totally about um, delegation. In fact, I'm on this crusade to get Julian Mortensen, who once was on this podcast, but has written a lot about this, and, and others like you who... I want I want I want it to be called the delegation doctrine, not the not the, not the non-delegation doctrine, <laughs> because it really is a delegation. More things should be able to be delegated than not to be. De- anyway, different point. Um, all right, let's talk about because of sex. The 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 words that were at issue, I think, in the Bostock case. Um, I don't think because of I mean, but so so on the one hand, on the spectrum, because of sex is not a number. It's not thirty-five. It's not. The words aren't totally self-defining in that way, obviously. Uh, on the other hand, um, there are some clear meanings and some clear non-meanings of because of sex. But I'm a little bit at a loss. And I thought Bostock was a really hard case. Um, and uh, I'll mention what Posner told me about it. He wrote, you know, concurrence in the Hively, and I'll, I'll mention that in a second. But one thing about Bostock that I find fascinating is because of sex— doesn't context have to fill that in a little bit? I, I don't understand how you can put context to the side. So there's certainly context. And I think a, a, a misunderstanding of what I'm calling the more formalistic mm-hmm. version of textualism that is on display in the majority opinion of Bostock, a misunderstanding is that it, it's not about context at all. Of course, it's about context, okay. but it's the context of the statute itself. So for me, the, the context is the fact, and Justice Gorsuch says this, Title VII is written written in extraordinarily broad terms with very limited exceptions. That's important semantic context. Um, And the fact that it says discrimination and defines discrimination as things like termination, other other forms of treating someone um, someone lesser. Um, I think you're saying the word, I assume you mean the word sex is unclear. Is, Is that I'm saying the phrase because of sex in the context of that statute is going to need some fleshing out in a lot of cases. So that may be true in a lot of cases. Um, I do think it's I, I I think it is very hard to imagine that people in 1964 anticipated yes. the result in Bostock. Um, I think for many textualists, myself included, that's irrelevant, whether legislators expected it or people at the time expected it. Um, I don't think it's that hard to, to say once you actually reason through the um, the analysis, when an employer fires a male employee because he is attracted to men, when the employer would not fire a female employee who is attracted to men, um, that's discrimination because of such individual sex. You're you're making that distinction on the on the basis. Um, but, but wait, what's your what's your answer? What's your answer? And, you know what's 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 your answer to just on that point? I'm sorry, to I'm sorry to interrupt, but Kavanaugh directly responded to that point. I think by saying, right, so, "I'm an employer." Just for the people listening, I'm I'm an employer. I don't want I don't want any people who are attracted to the same sex. I don't care if they're men or they're women or transgender. I don't care. Anyone who's attracted to the same sex is not welcome here. As horrific as that is, you know, that's an horrific policy. It's immoral. It's terrible. Is that because of sex? You know, it's really interesting. I think um, both Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh tried to say that there is there is a distinction between sex and sexual orientation. Justice Kavanaugh sort of left gender identity out of his, his opinion for reasons that are unclear, probably because it just didn't work very well for his analysis. Um, but I go back to some some earlier cases, and these are some that I that I bring up when I'm when I'm talking to students about about Bostock. So um, in the 1960s and 1970s, um, there was a question: Could an employer say refuse to hire a female employee with young children uh, when the employer would hire a male employee with young children? 
And I think most of us today would say that's discrimination because of such individual sex. Right. Um, next question, you know, what, what if an employer says, I am going to terminate um, female employees, they say an airline, I'm going to terminate female employees as soon as they get married, but I'm not going to terminate male employees when they get married. Is that discrimination because of such individual sex? I, I think most of us today would say, well, yes, pretty obviously. In the 1960s and 1970s, courts said no. They said, no, 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 the, the woman thing, the, the, the parenthood thing, that was, that's about parenthood or motherhood. It's right. not about sex. And these right. are different categories. And with, preg and with, with marriage, it was, that's about marriage it, it, not about sex. Those are different categories. And the courts reasoned in the 1960s and 1970s, a woman that has young children or gets married, sh she can't do the job because, you know, she's got all these familial obligations, right. but they definitely parsed it out so that those things were not the same as sex. Um, I think the analysis is, is exactly the same. Of course, there are distinctions between being a mother and being a woman. Um, I happen to be both. And of course, there are distinctions between being a pregnant woman and a non-pregnant woman. As, as we both know, these, yes. the Supreme Court has relied on that in the Constitutional. Yes. But that doesn't mean that when you when you refuse to hire someone or terminate someone on those bases, it's not also discrimination on the basis of sex. And so I think just because you use some some different type different ways of talking about something in ordinary conversation which is partly what justice kavanaugh was relying on does not mean that when you fire a male employee who is attracted to men but would not fire a female employee who's attracted to men or the part of the case that justice kavanaugh ignored um, when you fire a woman after she announces her transition from male to female that's discrimination on the basis yeah. of sex, even if we might also call it something else. I think that's fair. I think I, I think that's fair. Um, I have a question about Gorsuch, but before we get there, and your, I want to, um, and, and I will admit up front, I have an ulterior motive for this, but we'll play it out. I think reading your piece, you you suggest that a a the kind of formalistic textualism that you advocate, the absurdity doctrine has no place. Do I, am I reading you correctly in that? You are reading me correctly. So for, for, for the, I think some non-lawyers listen to this podcast, maybe six, I don't know, but I think some do. Why don't you explain the absurdity doctrine and why you don't think it's appropriate? And then I, and then, and then I have a, my ulterior motive question coming back at you. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so the absurdity doctrine is a, is a very longstanding doctrine, yes. I, will, I, I will certainly acknowledge that, that says even if the text of a law seems to lead to a particular result, um, we can't do that if the result would be absurd. And it's, it's a little hard to figure out what, what qualifies as absurd. And the Supreme Court has, has right. had different justices have different views on that. Uh, but it's basically like, if it would be just crazy, um, we can't do that. And, but you don't think that's an appropriate canon? I, I don't. Yeah. Um, uh. I think that uh, a fair reading of a text is, is unlikely to, to, to lead to absurd results. But I'll say, for me more, it's different justices have very different perspectives on what qualifies as absurd. Um, and many of these perspectives tend to bring out more of our uh, pol personal political assumptions right. um, in a way that other doctrines do not. So for example, the United States government, um, so the United States government in, in the litigation leading up to Bostock took different positions. So under the Obama administration, right. Uh, the Obama administration sided with the plaintiffs and said um, the disparate treatment of a gay, lesbian, and transgender in individual is, in fact, discrimination on the basis of such individual sex. While the case was pending, um, President Trump was elected, um, and the, the Trump Justice Department took to switch sides. And so when the case was in the Supreme Court, the Trump Justice Department was on the other side. And they used the word absurd. Right. They said, you know, they said strongly, strongly suggested <laughs> using the word absurd that it would be absurd to say that uh, extending Title VII to gay, lesbian, and transgender individuals um, that would just be crazy. And I think that's a really good illustration of the dangers of the absurdity doctrine in the hands of government officials, right. um, but it, particularly in the hands of judges. And so I think we are better off. Um, Better off stick, sticking to a system where the where the courts need to adhere the, to the text rather than making their own personal judgments about what is absurd and what is not. Does that encompass the Scrivener the Scrivener's error kind of thing where we really think there was just 
where there's strong evidence that a mistake was made? So I, I have not written about the Scribner's error in, in, um, at length, nor have I right. written about the absurdity doctrine right. at length. I, I am inclined, um, I, I am inclined to have an extraordinarily narrow, yeah. if, and perhaps close to non-existent Scribner's error doctrine. But I, before I've written about something, I want to be really careful um, in, in articulating what I think about it, because once I really get into something, I, I sometimes change my mind. Sure. So do I, by the way. That, uh, hopefully so do most academics, I would hope. Um, I just well, read... would hope? <laughs> I, well, I, I mentioned last week that, you know, I, I, I was preparing to not like Randy Barnett's new book. I ended up liking it a lot, you know, um, and that surprised me. Um, and it changed my mind. On some, I told him it changed my mind on some pretty core things. I'd like to think most of us are like that, I would hope. Um, so, all right. So I, I want to talk about Gorsuch for a second, and then I want to get back to the absurdity doctrine after that. I, you know, I'm a course, legal realist. Um, and I think I, when I researched this at the time Bostock was decided, roughly 60 to 70 percent, depending on the poll, of the American people thought gays and lesbians should be given this protection at work, depending how the question was, was asked. But certainly much more than a majority agreed with the result the court came up with. And I think that's because most people these days know gay people, you know, and, and, and that. My view on Gorsuch I, I, I don't read. I, I feel like he was motivated by something other than the text of the Constitution. I can't prove that. I mean, the text of the statute. I can't prove it. But I feel like there was enough between the lines there where he was going to reach that result come hell or high water. Do you think I'm wrong about that? So no one can get inside the minds yeah. of a, of a, of a yeah. justice. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say, I, I was I was asked to write that comment before Bostock came down. I, right. I didn't know how the case would come out. Sure. I knew how I, I thought it should come out, but right. I didn't didn't know for sure. But I was reading tons of Title VII literature and pretty much everything that came out in newspapers, et cetera, about the upcoming case. And almost to a person, there were a couple of exceptions to this. Um, Katie Iyer was one exception, but almost to a person, people predicted that the plaintiffs would lose in Bostock. And people predicted this because there was a, a conservative majority on the United States Supreme Court, and they said that even though they call themselves textualists, they're going to come to the conservative conclusion that the Trump administration is telling them to come to. Then after the decision came down, I heard a, a couple of people make the comment, well, Gorsuch only made that decision because he's libertarian. And, you know, both can't be right. Right. You know, if we're if we're going to be legal realists, you should make your predictions on the front front end and then recognize, well, actually, it was against my prediction rather than coming back and saying, well, it, the justice must have made that decision for ulterior motives because he was a libertarian. Now, I'm not saying that you in particular said said any of these things, but I did see this written a lot. Right. Um, and I think that that's what's a real challenge to a legal realist analysis, because can we after the fact try to explain every Supreme Court decision by what the justices wanted. Well, if your definition of Supreme Court decisions is what the justices want to do, then sure. But then the analysis becomes a little bit circular. And I, and I, I think Bostock is a very good example of that. So I would just take a little issue with every case. I, 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 think, I think the burden on legal realists, and now I'm just talking about the Supreme Court, I'm not talking about legal realism as maybe critical legal studies people thought about. I'm talking about just the Supreme Court. I don't think I, it's, it's incumbent upon me to show that in every case a legal realist explanation um, uh, holds. I've never said that. I think a lot of cases they don't care about. And when they don't care about it, they'll sign on to anything pretty much. Um, but I think it's my – I think if I can show you that 90 percent of the cases that we care about come out in a predictable fashion based on the priors of the justices, then I'm making a serious critique. What I said about Bostock before it came out was I was pretty sure the plaintiffs were going to win um, because I thought at least one of the conservatives would be empathetic to gay people. <laughs> uh, just, just, just as a matter of odds, just as a matter of, just as a matter of statistics, one of those people would either have a gay child or a gay friend. And, you know, I've said on this podcast many times, the only reason we have same-sex marriage as a constitutional right in this country is because Justice Kennedy had a very close family friend who was a closeted gay person, dean of McGeorge Law School, and he saw the indignity 
which he lived with being in the closet. And of course, Kennedy wrote about dignity. Um, so I'm, I'm just pushing back on the word every case. I think if I can show it's true in 90% of the cases we talk about, I think the critique's pretty strong. So um, by every case, I was referring to the salient cases because okay. I've heard you say that, but you're right. Okay. Like I yeah. should clarify, I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about the salient cases. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's part of the part of the challenge of the critique because I, I don't think the Supreme Court's um, jurisprudence should be cited you know, categorized into salient into non-salient. We should actually think about what the justices do writ broad. But I understand I understand that critique. And uh, so good job on predicting Bostock. Most people didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I just found it really fascinating that there was so much Monday morning quarterbacking about that case. Now, I, I will say this. I think many of us are at least partially legal realists in our post-legal realist society. I think there's some change some, some movement there. But I think most of us actually believe that justices are influenced by a variety of factors. I certainly believe that. Uh, when I was when I was a Department of Justice lawyer, did, did I think I could win a case if I could make um, my side seem sympathetic to the court? Of course I did. Right. One of the reasons that I advocate uh, a more formalistic, and some, some people say wooden, I don't like that term, but <laughs> I didn't say that. Wooden, that's I, didn't, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> oh, I know. Um, if one of the reasons I advocate a more formalistic approach um, here and have advocated more rule-like doctrines in other work is because I do think judges are influenced by other factors. And I think there are ways that we can organize the law and organize our legal system to minimize but not eliminate those factors. So let's segue. That's interesting. Let's segue a little bit to constitutional law. Um, you wrote a, I found, just a fantastically interesting book review of Richard Fallon's book. Um, and, and your book, uh, you call it The Supreme Court's Legitimacy Dilemma. And, and you wrote this a couple of years ago, I think. I, everything you said then is, what, a thousand times more salient now than it was even two years ago, I think. Um, I really love this. I don't agree with this piece in many ways, but I loved it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, uh, but before, So I want to ask you what the thesis of that piece is. But before we do that, do you... Um, do you carry over your hostility to the um, absurdity doctrine to constitutional interpretation as well? Um, so I guess I've never thought about constitutional interpretation as being being uh, as as, a, as applying the absurdity doctrine. I will say my approach to constitutional interpretation um, probably still in process, still in development. Okay. I, I'm a textualist across the board, uh, but I, I read the U.S. Constitution's text as not telling us very much. Right. Um, and so I see a lot of delegation to future generations, whether and that, to me, the most interesting question for constitutional interpretation, one that I think most people don't think about as much as I do. But the most interesting question is which institution should be doing the interpreting. Right. Um, and this is a question on which you and I would probably agree. Right. Yeah. Uh, should it be courts doing the interpreting or should it be should it be legislators um, or, both. or, or both. executive officials or both mm -hmm. or both? And 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 do different constitutional provisions assign different things. And so yeah. um, so my, my, my vision of constitutional interpretation is just is influenced by the fact that the U.S. constitutional text is um, pretty open ended in many, many important places. Well, that's why I raised this. Um, and this is again, I told you I had ulterior motives. I was being honest. Um, I've had this raging debate for years now with a number of originalists over the 11th Amendment specifically. Because the Hans Court absolutely employ so uh, again for non lawyers listening, the Eleventh Amendment is not an unambiguous provision. It is an incredibly clear provision that says exactly what we need to know. For the purpose of this conversation, the key phrase is: states can't be sued by citizens of another state. And a Supreme Court decision in the 1870s said another basically means the same because they couldn't possibly have meant another because they said that would be absurd. And when and people like Will Bode and Steve Sachs and other people um, agree with Hans. Not, not on the absurdity part of it, but on, on the whole thing. And I'm just curious what you thought about all that, if, if, you've, if you've thought about it. Because I, I find uh, the court's interpretation of the 11th Amendment to be everything you hate. Uh, I I agree with you. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> it, it is. Okay. Um, so so I, I, I with the caveat, I have not written about the 11th yeah. Amendment. I teach federal courts and I've taught the 11th Amendment for many years and, yeah. and uh, read, read many articles on it. Um, I find the Supreme Court's treatment of the 11th Amendment 
painful and atextual. <laughs> okay, good. In fact, my, my students can tell you that when I'm teaching Seminole Tribe, for your readers, is one of the major interpretations of the 11th yeah. Amendment. Um, they, they, they see my physical pain <laughs> that Chief Justice Rehnquist says in that opinion. Yes, yes, the dissenting opinion is relying on the text of the 11th Amendment, but the text is a straw man. <laughs> he, this, you know, he says this. Scalia signs on to it. I know, and I point that out to my students as well. Um, so did Justice Thomas. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I am always amazed um, at how much how, how much textualist dance or a textualist dance surrounds the Eleventh Amendment. Okay. And surprised at how hard people uh, try, um, formalists try to defend the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. Because I, I think you can you, you there the one defense is an originalist defense, right? That there was this pre-existing understanding um, pre-1789 that said states have very broad sovereign immunity. The Supreme Court misread that in Chisholm v. Jordan, Georgia, Chisholm v. Georgia, and the 11th Amendment fixed it. Um, so I, I think that's that's a plausible understanding, and that's what many people say, but I, I think it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and one of the things I point out to my students, and one of the things I want to research myself, if it was so wide, so well understood and widespread, how did the court in Chisholm versus Georgia get it so wrong? They didn't. The answer to your and, question is they didn't. <laughs> they didn't get it wrong. Right. So, but it, you know, it sort of undercuts the idea yeah. that everybody understood right. there was this broad state sovereign immunity when a majority of the Supreme Court said Agreed. no. And the other piece of it is the Eleventh Amendment is so precisely worded yes. to go along with Article Three um, that it and. As you probably know, there were lots of suggestions for broader amendments yes. um, at the time. And they chose th this language is the language that made it into the Constitution through the ratification process. Um, and so my instinct, again, without having written on the 11th Amendment yeah. myself, my instinct is to say that we should read precise constitutional texts like the 11th Amendment. And I'm borrowing this from a, an article by John Manning. Yes. Um, uh, we should read precise constitutional texts the way they are written. Um, and this is this is getting back to my, my point that the text of the U.S. Constitution is frequently open-ended. It's also frequently not open-ended. And right. when it's not, right. we should read it as written. So well, we agree 100% on that. So thank you um, for that. Um, I use my body crumples when teaching Seminole Tribe, which I did last week, um, for, for, for similar reasons. But I, I often tell my students this. I don't believe there's a Supreme Court justice in American history who has read the 11th Amendment how it should be read. <laughs> because there's not, in other words, the liberals get it wrong too, because the liberals want to allow suits by citizens from other states under the federal, under federal question. Um, and and at, at one time there was four votes. Brennan had four votes. Well, there were five votes for that at one point almost. Um, but that's not what it says. <laughs> it's, it, there's, no, there's no federal question exception to the text. And to me, one of the hundreds of reasons the court is not a court is because not a single justice in American history has ever said, let's just read it for what it says. And that's amazing to me. So Justice, yes, Justice Stevens came close, but I, I agree with you. He didn't actually he didn't yeah. actually do it. I think the diversity interpretation that you're referring to yeah. actually is a very strong textual reading because the 11th Amendment mirrors Article 3. And I think one can very reasonably read Article 3 and the 11th Amendment um, together to say, look, Article 3 grants jurisdiction, um, all cases arising under the, the Constitution, laws and treaties of the United States, and then all these cases involving diverse parties. And the 11th Amendment cuts out some of that and says, no, the judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to these particular suits. And I think you can read that to say it's cutting out only part of uh, that Article Three jurisdiction and not all of it. I, I actually, this is where, um, you know, my not having written about the 11th Amendment comes in. I have never been 100% sure which of those two I favor the most, the um, the reading that it relies on the 11th Amendment exclusively versus right. the reading that reads the 11th Amendment in conjunction with Article 3. Um, I've gone back and forth. My my instinct is to say there's a lot to the, um, the view that you're just cutting out the diversity jurisdiction. Um, either way, these are the most plausible ways of reading the text of the 11th Amendment. Um, and not the way that it's current. It's been been interpreted by the United States Supreme Court for a couple of decades. So one last question about that. Um, 
which is not fully formed. I hope this is a coherent question. Again, we agree that if all we had was the text of the 11th Amendment, and that's just and leaving aside the law and equity part, which the court has also ignored, leaving us that part, it suggests law and equity would be treated the same, and of course the court is treated differently. But leaving that aside, a state cannot be sued by a citizen of another state. That's not, that is not ambiguous in any way, shape, or form. We know what the word another means. We don't need any dictionaries to figure that out. We know what it means. When you, if, if this goes back to your textualism. If we can say, well, we, hold on, we don't just have the 11th Amendment. We have that plus Article 3, plus trying to figure out what Chisholm really, what they were trying to do when they were responding to Ch- Well, we're way outside the text of the 11th Amendment now. And so I'm a little unclear where you draw the lines as to what we're allowed to consider outside the text and what we're not allowed to consider outside the text when the text is clear. So we're talking about the U.S. constitutional yes. text, right? Yes. And I, I think um, reading it in intertextually <laughs> makes some amount of sense, particularly when the language of the 11th Amendment is clearly mirror, mirroring that of Article 3. Um, now, one can debate exactly what that mirror means. Right. And I think you're right, one could just read the 11th Amendment to block all suits against states by out-of-staters and citizens of foreign states. Right. Um, I think it's also reasonable to say, look, Article 3 grants this jurisdiction and the 11th Amendment took away only part of it. Um, and it it's not just citizens in other states. The judicial power of the United States shall not be construed to extend to right. leading into that, which I think gets you the reference to to Article Three. Now, one thing fair I fair. am I am not relying on here is Chisholm v. Georgia. Right. When I mentioned Chisholm, I was saying that um, one one issue I've had with the the argument that it was just there was a widespread understanding that states were always immune. Um, I've never seen it adequately explained, and I'm probably going to get some emails right after our discussion. <laughs> um, well, I said this in X article, so uh, may- maybe I've missed it. Um, but I, it's never been explained to my satisfaction in, in an article that I have read um, how the justices of the Supreme Court were so wrong about something that was so widely understood. So we, that was my, that was my reliance on Chisholm v. Georgia. I think it's a great point, and we agree on it. So... Um... You talk about the Supreme Court's legitimacy dilemma, and there's so we, I could talk to you for three days about this article. Um, we don't have three days; we have about thirty more, you know, twenty-five more minutes. But I'm so interested in this. So why don't you explain what you mean by the Supreme Court's legitimacy dilemma? And well, why don't you explain that? Right. So in 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 his book and, and other other work as well, Richard yeah. Fallon has um, suggested different types of legitimacy, and I think this is a very helpful way of thinking about it. One is sociological legitimacy, and it's kind of the public perceptions of the Supreme Court. And that I think is when when people use the term legitimacy, that's typically what they're talking about. Um, but uh, Richard Fallon also says there's legal legitimacy. Is is the court using um, legal tools in a way that would be acceptable within the legal community and also just kind of makes sense? Um, and then moral legitimacy is there. Is there moral is is can can a decision be supported morally? Um, Fallon actually conflate Dick Fallon actually conflates um, legal and moral legitimacy a lot in in his yeah. in his book and says you know if if a if if a decision has legal legitimacy then it's also morally legitimate in a morally legitimate system like and he says ours is one. Um, what I argue in my piece is that the Supreme Court has the justices are often inclined to sacrifice the legal and moral legitimacy of their opinions um, to protect the sociological legitimacy of the Supreme Court as a whole. And that's what I call the legitimacy dilemma. Um, an example of that that I think a lot of people point to is, is NFIB, NFIB versus Sebelius, where um, this was a constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act. A lot of people thought the Supreme Court was going to strike down the Affordable Care Act. This was a signature piece of the Obama administration, and they thought this is going to undo the Supreme Court. And a lot of people think, some people disagree with this, but a lot of people think that Chief Justice Roberts at the last minute switched his vote um, in, in NFIB versus Sebelius to uphold the law, even though he thought it was unconstitutional. And that, if that is a correct description of what, what Chief Justice Roberts did, that would be, you know, clear example of this legitimacy dilemma where the justice thought, I am doing something that I said, I'm doing something that I think is legally incorrect, but I'm doing it to save the Supreme Court's reputation. So I, there's, a, there's so much 
to unpack about that. Um, one thing I do want to say it's self-serving is um, Dahlia Lithwick was nice enough to amplify my views on this once. I was shocked anybody would. Um, I, I, like most, I, I, let's credit Justice Roberts with probably agonizing over that case is my guess. I think we can, that's probably a safe assumption. Um, there was every reason to believe he changed his mind in May or, you know, uh, Joan Biscott's book seems to suggest that strongly. Um, and I, by the way, I'm in favor of justices agonizing. I think that's a good thing. So like all hard decisions we make as parents, friends, whatever, uh, spouses, um, it's, it's rarely one thing. Like there's you know, a lot of things going on. Um, I think part of what was going you're going to yell at me in about eight seconds, but I think part of what was going on there is Roberts wanted it to be the Roberts court, not the Kennedy court. If you go back and read all the media in April, May, and June of that year, you will see everybody talking about what is Justice Kennedy going to do. And in Robert, and, and, and from 2006 to like 2012, Kennedy was 94% in 5-4 con law cases or something, some absurd number like that. Justice Roberts is a human being who has reached the pinnacle of his career. I don't think he wants to be president, so he's not going anyplace else. This is his last job. He has the dream job he's always wanted, covered it, and loved. He gets there, and it's the Kennedy court. And everybody is calling it the Kennedy court. And um, I think, I'm not saying that's the whole thing by any means, but I think that was on his mind. Do you think I'm nuts? So I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I that's that's a that's an interesting interesting theory. He did change um, the, He did change the discussion, right? He he did, yes. um, and he's it, it is now. Well, for a while, it was actually the Roberts Court because he he was the swing justice yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think that that I think there's no question that Chief Justice Robert changed Chief Justice Roberts changed his mind. I think the dis disagreement is about. How and why? Sure. Um, so one could say he just convinced himself that the um, the taxing power supported the law, and so everything was good. I I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, 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 I throw that at you. It's I impossible. It's, it's impossible to prove, but I, I do think I, I do think it is historically true that justices have been inclined to change their views on the law to protect the Supreme Court's reputation. I agree with that. Um, when I, uh, on my podcast, once a podcast, I have to mention retired Judge Posner. So here's my one time I'm going to mention him. When I talked about this with him, I was surprised that, and I shouldn't have been in retrospect, he thought that Roberts's, con if it's true that Roberts had a concern for the legitimacy of the court and therefore sacrificed some legal principles, which is exactly what your article is talking about, Posner thought that was great. It's absolutely the job of Supreme Court justices, especially the chief justice, to safeguard the court's reputation. And Posner was shocked that I would think that was somehow inappropriate or should be off, that, that that's somehow not something he should be concerned about. I don't know where you stand on that. I take it you think that that should not be part of Justice Roberts' job. Right. So, so it's I, I i titled the paper a dilemma because i think that it is yeah so in, in in an ideal world you'd always want justices to be deciding the law as they believe the law should be decided um and and that would be great and it's easy for us as academics to say we want a particular approach to interpretation or we want particular decisions we want um we want justice to be principled that's certainly what i say and what i think it is very difficult for us to know what we would do when push came to shove, if we were actually sitting on a court, including the Supreme Court, and we thought that the court was going to crumble at a decision. What I say in the paper is I, I, I talk about the switch in time in 1937. Yep. Um, I also talk about what I think is one of the most embarrassing cases in the Supreme Court's history, name versus name, yep. where the Supreme Court refused to hear a challenge to Virginia's ban on interracial marriage because it was afraid to even though they clearly had jurisdiction in the case. Right. Um, but when I talk about that, I, I acknowledge if the Supreme Court had not switched in 1937, it is possible that Roosevelt would have packed the Supreme Court. It is possible that the Supreme Court's overall legitimacy would have been undermined. It is possible we would have not have gotten Brown versus the Board of, Brown versus Board of Education or eventually Loving versus Virginia. Right. And so ultimately I say it's a trade-off um, and I, I think what makes people uncomfortable, as I say, that is it is legally illegitimate 
to uh, to take one for the team and protect the Supreme Court's overall um, overall public reputation. I think it is legally illegitimate, but that doesn't mean it's wrong <laughs> as, as a moral matter. And I, I think that it, it's a it's a very difficult dilemma right. that underscores, you know, none of us really knows what we will do when push comes to shove. That answer, I love that answer. I, I think it, it goes to how brilliant this article is, and 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 the fact that you chose the word dilemma, you know, I think is is the perfect word. I think it is that. I think anyone who takes dogmatic views on this isn't thinking through it too clearly. But there's a premise of your article and this dilemma that, of course, I disagree with strongly, which is that law matters at all. See, I, um, I'm still at the point where I think law matters in how they explain their decisions and law matters when they don't care. But in cases like NFIB and abortion and affirmative action and guns and 11th Amendment and so on, um, are you convinced the law part comes at the front end rather than the back end? Uh, I, I believe that it does. Okay. Um, as I said earlier, it, it, am I naive enough to think that the justices don't have prior political views or jurisprudential views that are um, sometimes enmeshed with their politics? Um, do I do I think that academics or judges don't care about the outcomes of cases? Of course not. I, I, I'm devising a theory of textualism uh, that to, to limit those influences, which obviously recognizes that they're there. Um, but I, but I still think law is a big part of it, and I think it's important that we believe that because I think as long as we believe that it still will be. A few years ago, I was at a conference on judicial independence and a, a court of appeals judge who had previously been a professor uh, gave a speech saying that when he was a professor, he would say things like, ah, it's whatever the judge eats for breakfast. That's how the case comes out. And he said that when he was going through the confirmation process and really thinking about being a judge, he thought to himself, when I wear if, if I have the opportunity to wear that black robe, I need to think about what it would be like if it was my children or my sister, my brother sitting in front of me in that courtroom and what kind of judge I would want them to have. And he said, you know, it, it was a metamorphosis. Once he thought about that, he realized it's not just what you eat for breakfast. You actually want to try to make the right decision on the law and the facts. And I, I believe that most judges try to do that. I don't think that all judges succeed at all times. I believe this is true not only in the, in the lower courts, but also in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so I, that's why I think it's really important to encourage judges uh, to limit the influences of all this, all this external stuff that, of course, is out there. And I will also say this, um, and this goes to some of the work that I've done on norms of judicial independence. The way we talk about the courts affects the norms. And I think it's I I think your approach is totally valid and I, I applaud you for doing it, but I hope that it does not become the dominant view in the academy because I think the more we tell judges that their job is to decide cases on the law, the more likely it is to be true in the long term. So so a couple of mild pushbacks. I think this is a great conversation to have. One is I do distinguish between the Supreme Court and all of the courts. So I and 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 People know my work well enough who are listening to this. No, I, I do make a big distinction there. But it's relevant to something that you said, though. I, I, I do think psycho these are human beings. They go to the bathroom. They eat dinner. They go to baseball games. Well, no one goes to baseball games. But they, they go to sporting events, whatever. They are human beings. And I think it is possible that there's a job description that no human being should ever have. Ever. Which is, here is a ton of mostly unreviewable power for life. So I guess I, I, I want, and, and, and my agenda here is I'm trying to persuade you of something I'm not going to be able to persuade you about. But isn't it possible that that job description here is, if you get four, as Brennan used to say, if you, get, you know, if you get five votes, if you get four other votes, you can do anything. The only thing you can't do is lose the faith of the American people. If you lose that, you have no sword nor purse. But with that, so that, that, and that's a real constraint, but it's not a legal one. You can do anything you want and you can't be fired for life and you have a lot of power. That judge, that law professor slash judge you're talking about, I think a lot of Supreme Court justices start off that way, but no human being can resist it. It's just not possible for humans to resist 
the siren call of I can't be fired and I have enormous power. And, and that's why no other country in the world does it. None. I mean, we do something, Iceland maybe, but I'm not sure what their Supreme Court does. But there's no other Supreme Court in the world with life tenure in a free country. So I guess, I guess as, a, as a pure matter of psychology, here's the, and, and then, so here's my, okay. I'm sure you are very happy at University of Alabama Law School. Like all of us, I'm sure you have ways you could improve it, you know, if you were queen or king or president of the law school. Think about your job in two ways. Let's say you're dean of Alabama and you have a provost, a president, and a board of regents or whatever Alabama is governed by. That's one job. Now you're dean of Alabama with no check at all. You can do anything you want and no one can stop you and you can never be fired. You're going to resist. I mean, the only thing you're going to do is make sure you do enough so they don't throw you out. I mean, which they can't do anyway unless you commit a crime. Those are two very different jobs. Isn't it possible? So my question is, isn't it possible the job description we have for Supreme Court justices is just a terrible one? So there's a lot there. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, you know, is it is it possible that the that once somebody gets confirmed to the United States Supreme Court, no matter what they thought about the judicial role ahead of time, they say this is out the window. Now I'm going to just um, do what I want um, and hope I can convince four other people to go along with me and, and then we're good. Uh, certainly that's possible. Um, I don't think that is the Supreme Court that we have had in our history, and I'm very grateful that we haven't had it. And I think it's in part because they do have to they do have eight other colleagues. Um, so you have to have a lot of people doing this all at once, even though their entire legal careers, they've been told that's not what judges do. And for many of them, they were previously judges. And so that's not what they think judges should do. Right. Um, and they have to give reasons for many of their decisions. Um, perhaps not enough. There's a, there's a lot of discretionary discretionary work on, on um, the cert docket, putting aside the yeah. emergency or, or shadow docket. Yeah. Uh, but they do have to give reasons and they have to face dissents. Um, and, and I think all of these things put constraints on judges that you don't see in other in other walks of life. Deans don't write little opinions explaining why they did what they did. They just make <laughs> decisions typically. Right. Um, and um, that's true of, of most U.S. presidents. And I think that puts limits on judges. And because of because of that thought process, I think that um, that, you know, just having to write something does actually limit what you can do in a way that I think puts a, puts an important constraint on judges, even if it's not a perfect constraint. And, and, and I, I, as you would expect, I raise this concern with most of my guests, um, and many of them give answers like that. Yours was a particularly good one. Um, but then I have to ask this next question, which is just, to me, so painful in some ways. And, and especially if you teach federal courts, you'll sympathize. I don't know how you reconcile what you just said with, for example, the standing doctrine from 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 Valley from Frothingham to Flast to Valley Forge to Hine, we're getting technical here. But Judge Easterbrook, who you've mentioned, said in a special on bank kind of note <laughs> that this area of the law is completely irrational and it makes no sense. Which is, and he's right about that. So we can't fix it here at the Seventh Circuit. You guys have to fix this. Please fix this. And then they do exactly the opposite and do exa- I mean, do exactly the same thing they've been doing for 40 years, which Scalia calls a violation of the rule of law. And I think he's right. Or, I'll be real quick, Shelby County, when Justice Roberts completely illegitimately, and I won't, I just won't counter an opposite side to this, uses ellipses to reverse Katzenba- South Carolina versus Katzenbach on the equal state footing doctrine. He, just, he literally miscites, misquotes, does an evil, dastardly thing by overturning a case with ellipses and never mention that he's actually doing that. And I can give you, I think, 25 other examples. So I don't, of, of things that no judge ought to do. No judge ought to reverse a case silently with ellipses by misquoting the case. The, the, the taxpayer standing doctrine makes no sense to anybody. I've never met a scholar who said, I agree with that doctrine. No one's ever said that. But they keep doing it. So I don't understand where the law is. I guess I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, so so um, one, I'm not going to defend Shelby County. Okay, yeah, I know. Um, so I'll just, just say that that, <laughs> yeah. that that is um that 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 case has many problems from yeah. a formalist perspective as well. Yes. Um so uh, on so I just taught Bivens earlier today. Okay. So there's another area yes. <laughs> where I, I I actually compare it to to taxpayer standing, yeah. which my students did earlier this semester. Yeah. Um so 
I, I actually don't think that that um, the irrationality of taxpayer standing doctrine or the confusion of Bivens is a political thing. There, there was um, at least or, or suggests that judges are not thinking about law. It actually shows how precedent, how constraining precedent is, and how confusing precedent gets when you're trying to limit precedent and you're having trouble doing it, and you don't actually have the votes to completely overturn it. That's what happened in Hind versus Freedom from Religion yes. Foundation. What's interesting, if you read Justice Scalia's opinion, then you read the dissenting opinions, they all agree. Uh, it's a majority of the Supreme Court that thinks our jurisprudence makes no sense. But each of these opinions want to take it in a totally different direction, right? Justice Scalia just wants to get rid of Flass versus Cohen and get rid of taxpayer standing. The dissenters want to actually just apply it and, and say, let's 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 really have this um, this right. jurisprudence. And then we have this plurality opinion saying, well, we're just going to we're just going to limit it. That's that's the that's the difficulty of having nine members of the Supreme Court not agreeing on stuff. And you get strange precedents. And it did with Bivens. I thought it was very interesting. The Supreme Court declined an opportunity to overrule Bivens entirely. Right. And I think that suggests they don't have a majority of the Supreme Court to make a clear ruling on this topic. We have to end in a couple of minutes, but real quickly, for the Fed court nerds listening to this, there may be eight of them, um, the person who wrote Flass versus Cohen I worked with, uh, he was Justice Warren's law clerk, I worked with at the Department of Justice, he was the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference, and I was actually defending um, various federal laws, giving money and stuff to private schools. And he told me that, and he told me I could tell, I can make this public when I became a teacher. Um, <laughs> Warren said to him, we're going to find taxpayer standing in Flast. And he said, good, uh, should I overturn Frothingham? He said, no, we can't overturn Frothingham. And then he said, oh, okay, so Justice Stewart wants to say the, tax, the establishment clause is special. I'll just write that. No, you can't write that either. I don't believe that. Then how do you want me to write the opinion? And according to Charlie Wilson, who's this law clerk who's now passed away, Warren said, that's your problem. <laughs> and that's how and that's and that's how we got fast versus Cohen. Um, we, I, I want everyone to read um, both of these articles, uh, which textualism in Harvard and the Supreme Court's legitimacy dilemma. They are great articles. I really believe that. And, and it made me think. And even though I disagree with a lot of the premises, I think they're fascinating, provocative articles. Can we do a really fast lightning round on court reform? Because you were on the commission. Okay. So yes. first, one minute on what it was like being on the commission, and then I have like four questions, and then we'll say goodbye. What was it like being on the commission? It was it was an experience. Okay. Um, so <laughs> part of it was a lot of fun, yeah. um, I, and I did actually make some, some make some very good friends as part of the commission. Yeah. I, it much of it was extraordinarily stressful. Yeah. Um, I think that some of this came out in the public debates that there was there was a tremendous amount of disagreement among the commissioners. Yeah. And I think it was a microcosm of our broader society and, and the deep, deep disagreements on these issues. And so that made it challenging. And I um, I wondered at various points if we would actually come up with a final report. And ironically, too, because we were never asked to make recommendations. So all right. we had to agree on was an analysis <laughs> with no recommendations. And yet that alone was extraordinarily hard. Um, and I my hats off to Bob Bauer and Christina Rodriguez and Kate Andreas, our, our fair leaders, yeah. for, for getting us to the finish line. Yeah. Christina was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago. And I could tell, I didn't say this to her, but I could tell it being over was not a bad thing. <laughs> for, for, all right. I, I, I share that sentiment. Okay. <laughs> your personal views. Not not to, this is nothing this is not the commission. This is just your personal views. Cameras in the court? So I don't think they're necessary. I think the audio recording is probably enough. Okay. Uh, the I, I personally don't have a problem with uh with cameras in the courtroom or just more uh transparency. Right. The the best argument that I've heard against cameras in the courtroom is that it would make uh, people know what the justices look like. Um, and in a, in, a, in a world where there actually are more physical threats against um, judges than there ever used to be, that I think would be a legitimate concern. Um, and I think once you have live audio, as long as they keep that, I, you probably don't need the cameras. Okay. But at a minimum, you want li live, you want people to at least listen to it live. I want them to have the opportunity, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, should there be a binding ethics code? Yes. Okay. Um, and so one of the things I've said about that is I, I, I want them to write it. They, they should write their own ethics code. But if they can't write it, I think Congress could use the spending power to say adopt this code or you get one law crook next year, not four or something like that. Do you think Congress can do that? 
Uh, well, I don't think Congress needs to. I, I think one would worry about the the threat aspect of that, um, especially under the Supreme Court's changing spending doctrine. Yeah, I, I have actually argued um, um, in a in in a um, a conference type setting that Congress has the power to the necessary and proper clause. Congress Excellent. has the power to and and. and in combined with the exceptions and regulations clause, I think Congress actually has the affirmative authority Excellent. to issue, impose an ethics code. Uh, our report says we kind of want the justices to do it, and I don't think there was a tremendous amount of agreement on the commission as to whether Congress could impose one, but right. I, I think it could, but I have a pretty capacious understanding of, of congressional power. I agree with you 100%. It's, it's, I think it's a national embarrassment that our highest court doesn't have a binding ethics code. That seems just crazy to me. I agree. And, I, and I'll tell you, so I, for an earlier project, I actually read the five decades of debate <laughs> on uh, what became the uh, Judicial Responsibility, Judicial um, Removal and Responsibility Act yeah. um, of 1980, the, the law that governs, yeah. governs the lower federal courts. And throughout those five decades, various people proposed having that apply to the U.S. Supreme Court. And members of Congress actually put that in the legislation. And then other members said, no, 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 that that would be unconstitutional. Interesting. A violation of separation of powers with almost no explanation at all. And it, it's an interesting thing about our, this is something I've written about in other work. We have very, very strong norms of congressional deference and support for the judiciary and particularly the Supreme Court. Um, I don't think there's a strong constitutional basis for that, but Congress really was hands off when it came to the US Supreme Court and I think continues to be. So I think as a political matter, it's actually very hard to imagine Congress imposing an ethics code. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, since, since they can clearly impose an ethics code on lower court judges and the executive branch, at least to a certain degree, seems obviously it's constitutional to do it for the Supreme Court as well. But so I agree with you. But but I don't I don't know. Yeah, not, they they just decided not to. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then finally, of course, the elephant in the room: life tenure. Where do you stand on that? I I am not sure. Okay. Um, I. I think if you were creating a system from scratch, you would not give judges life tenure. I right. think that is a that is a very bad design. <laughs> um, and to be fair, our, our Article Three doesn't say life tenure; it True. says good behavior. Uh, but but I think it was understood from the beginning that it would be good behavior, um, absent um, absent impeachment, at least for, at least at the U.S. Supreme Court level. The lower court's a little bit different. Um, and I, I think once you have a system of life tenure, it's extremely difficult to change it. And the commission's report actually discusses some of the challenges in terms of writing. Can it be done by legislation or does it have to be by constitutional amendment? I think it has to be done by constitutional amendment. But even if you do it that way, there are complexities in terms of applying it to current justices um, versus new justices and how long the reform is going to go into effect. I also I will also say because of how heated our appointments process has gotten, it is by no means clear to me that if we had, say, 18-year terms, as many people have proposed, and so we knew that there was going to be an, a, an appointment every two years for 18 terms, it's not at all clear to me that that would make things less volatile than they currently are. I think that fights every two years over an 18-year term could be quite divisive, in part because the Supreme Court has become so important in our society. And I think you and I might agree yes. that it shouldn't be so important. Yes, in we would society, agree. <laughs> but it is, right? right. And so I, I think given the Supreme Court's role in, our, in, in the United States, I think there are a lot of problems with imposing term limits now. Well, I'm about to publish a blog post probably next week. It's going to get me in all kinds of trouble where I say I think it's time to, stop, to start disobeying the Supreme Court. And the reason I think it's time to start, I know, I know. But, I, but the reason I think that is because court reform is not going to happen and for what you just said. The court just plays too large a role in our politics, in our elections, in everything that we do. And maybe it's time to do something drastic because incremental steps is, are not happening. <laughs> um, but no one's going to agree so with me on that. I, one of the most important norms, and this is, this is I, I've written about, um, is the norm of obedience to yeah. judicial decisions. And not just the Supreme Court, but lower federal courts as well. And this is not a norm that has existed in our society throughout our history. In fact, it yeah. I argue it became strong only in the wake of Brown versus the Board of Education and massive resistance. I, I think um, one of the reasons I am so concerned about the Supreme Court's sociological legitimacy is that 
in the long term, if the Supreme Court loses its sociological legitimacy, people will not obey its decisions. And I've said this, I can't tell you even how many public speeches. And most people say, well, of course, people will still obey. What's the problem? So I'm actually a little bit grateful for your um, for your piece, because I can point to it as an example. People are already pushing for this. And you're not alone. Um, even in the, in the past couple of years, particularly in the wake of the controversies over um, Judge Garland and his failed nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, failed, failed appointment to the Supreme Court, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, there are increasing calls along these lines. This is extremely dangerous for our federal judiciary. And to the extent the justices are listening, I hope that they pay attention and that the public pays attention and that calls like yours are not obeyed. We may have to have part two of this podcast picking up right there because there's so much I want to say, but I don't have time. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I was, I, we have never really had a chance to sit down together. We've been at conferences together, but and really have a conversation. And I just enjoyed it so much. And, and I, I, I think your work is excellent. And, and I, I really want people to read it. Well, thank you. It was an honor to be, to be part of this. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.